Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello and welcome to Politico's 2016 Nerdcast, where we bring you the stories behind the stories and geek out on this amazing circus of an election. It's Thursday, September 1st, and I'm Kristen Roberts, national editor. Here are the numbers that mattered this week. 10. That's how many points were in Donald Trump's hardline immigration platform. 154. The estimated electoral vote count that Real Clear Politics has for Trump as of today. Four. Clinton's average lead in two Wisconsin polls out this week in a state that is suddenly tightening. And 80 million, the money Clinton raised in August from the 68 fundraisers that she and her Veep headlined. But the small dollar, online money, not quite so impressive. Grab your calculators and enjoy the 2016 Nerdcast. Here we are again. Hello to Ken Vogel. Hey. Eli Stokels. Hey, Kristen. Scott Bland. Greetings. And a very special welcome back to Charlie Matessian. <laughs> Hi, Kristen. We've got another listener calling in today. His name is Brandon, and he's from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Brandon, what's your question? Yeah, so I was wondering, in the alt-right episode, uh, you started uncovering some trends from SEC filings, uh, mainly that Trump is paying non-political businesses uh, who he's in partnership with to conduct services for his campaign. And it triggered this question in my mind when, I think it was about 15 years ago, Trump said that he could run for president and make money doing it. So my question is, is Trump making money during this campaign? That's a good question. Ken? Uh, so it's, it's difficult to answer, but we can look at the Federal Election Commission reports and see that, in fact, the campaign has spent nearly $8 million at Trump family companies. Those are companies with mostly with his name on it. Uh, that's about 9% of his overall spending. Most of it went to uh, Trump's private jet company, which he's used as essentially the de facto campaign plane. Uh, he also made payments to buildings that he owns for uh, office and living space, including Trump Tower uh, in New York, which is where the campaign headquarters are located, and uh, his Mar-a-Lago club in Florida, uh, where he's held a lot of events. They even paid the winery, the Trump winery in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is actually okay wine for, uh, for Virginia wine of almost $5,000, and reimbursed Donald Trump Jr. about $20,000 for travel costs. So whether he's making money off of that, it's tough to say. I mean, he he would be, uh, you know, the, the, those entities would be uh, conceivably pulling rent, for instance, the Trump Tower for that for that office space from someone else. Uh, probably at the same rate, you would hope at the same rate. In fact, they're legally obligated to charge the campaign market rate for rent and stuff like that. Uh, and then 
the, the bigger question, is he making money overall considering that he put in all this money to his campaign, more than $50 million and counting uh, to the campaign, uh, almost all of it in contributions or he's moved the he, he had originally loaned the campaign this money and he's basically moved it to the contribution category, said he's not going to pay himself back for those loans. In fact, he can't pay himself back for loans that were made for primary spending. So I think in the end, the, the amount of money that he put into the campaign will be much more significant than any that he drew from it, that his companies drew back from it. Ken, can I piggyback on Brandon's question? Because uh, I think it's fascinating. Would you say it's unprecedented the way he's used uh, these entities? Because, I mean, it's it's not unheard of. You see it a lot in House and Senate campaigns where there's some aspect of feather bedding where you've got uh, candidates or members of Congress paying rent to themselves, renting office space from buildings they own or uh, where you see them paying their family members for campaign activity um, or salaries in, in that respect. But to me, the, the lengths to which the, the Trump campaign have has gone strike me as unprecedented, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I, he certainly has more entities to which he can, uh, you oh, know, which he point. can use for services. We see like we saw like Gingrich, Newt Gingrich in 2012 using like entities that he had, uh, you know, Gingrich Productions, I believe, was one of them. He, he, he paid them. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think that he, he's doing more of it, perhaps even by orders of magnitude. But he's also putting more money into his campaign than, than uh, you know, most other folks. But Mitt Romney, for instance, in 2008, gave his campaign $45 million. Trump is well past that. Uh, so I think, yeah, it's, 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 it's definitely, I think it is unprecedented. But I don't think it's, uh, again, I don't think that he is ultimately using it as like a money-making, or he, that it ultimately will be a money-making proposition for him. And I would just chime in here at the end and just, you know, say if we step back from this, um, yeah, he spent more right now than he's probably given or you know paid to entities that he owns. But think about this long term. And what what does Donald Trump do after this campaign? If he doesn't win the White House, does he start some sort of new media company? Does he get more money to do another reality TV show? I mean, the investment that he's making in this campaign, which a lot of people could you know argue is really just a huge branding exercise, um, you know. That remains to be seen. And whether it's a positive or negative branding exercise for him in the long run also remains to be seen. But even if he has narrowed uh, his appeal to this you know, really devoted niche on the, the, the far right or the alt right or whatever it is, that can be very profitable uh, over time sort of beyond you know, the, the things that show up on FEC reports while he's an official candidate. Although I should also say that that, too, is not unprecedented. We see many sure. candidates for president who, who end up failing, if he does end up failing, who uh, spin off profitable sidelines, whether they be gigs on Fox News but or— But never someone who's been so dominating of media. I mean, any presidential candidate is going to get a ton of media. But, but I mean, I think Trump and the way he sort of campaigned and used, used multimedia is really unprecedented. Yeah, and that, that's true. And then certainly the, that he could end up making money off of that, although there's a, a legitimate question as to how much his current business ventures even make independent right. and profit independent of the campaign. So with everything with Trump, the, the, there's a lot of you know smoke around it, and it's unclear the actual finances. All right. Thank you so much, Brandon, for listening and for sending us your question. Thank you all very much. 
Let's get to our first data point. It is the number 10. That's how many points were in Donald Trump's hardline, hawkish, and true-to-his-roots immigration platform. Eli, what did we learn about the next 68 days from the last 24 hours? Well, buckle up, but I mean, we knew that going into, we knew, we've known that for a long time. I mean, look, this is, uh, you know, the the hardening, softening, hardening, softening, you know, thing that we've seen over the last couple of weeks on the immigration and, and the opacity of his positions. He tried to sort of make it clearer last night. Uh, he started out, you know, telling this really raucous crowd out there in Phoenix that uh, this isn't going to be a rally speech per se. This is going to be a policy speech. But it was very much a red meat rally speech with a lot of policy mixed into it. And the 10 points that he went through on, you know, ending funding for sanctuary cities and stopping catch and release and, you know, beefing up the number of, you know, ICE officers, um, building the wall, all these things point by point. Yes, they're a little more policy focused than your usual Donald Trump's, uh, you know, rally speech. Um, but, you know, he had a lot of work to do clarifying his position on this. And in a way, it seemed like all that hot rhetoric and all the tough talk on immigration was not to clarify, but to sort of obscure the one small hedge that he made, which is that on deporting undocumented immigrants, as he said, they're all going to have to go. At no point did he say, I'm, t I'm sending all 11 million undocumented immigrants in this country home. Um, that was not there. But that is a sort of small detail on the head of this pin um, when, you know, by and large, all the rhetoric, all the promises, we're going to get rid of the two million, uh, you know, undocumented immigrants with criminal records on day one of my presidency. I mean, all that tough talk. I mean, it really is hard to sort of elucidate, um, you know, what you know, how hard or how, so if there's any sort of gradation or change to his policy, well, because he he's still talking, he is still talking just as sort of with just as much bombast and vitriol and in language that, you know, if, if the key to this speech, and you have to think the key to any policy speech at this point in the election is broadening appeal and, and aimed at general election voters. I don't know that he really did that in the speech last night because the, the tone was so over the top and so angry um, that it's just hard to see this really broadening his appeal. Corey Lewandowski saying on TV, well, this was aimed at, you know, the white male voters just making sure they're locked in. Well, I mean, that's what the primary was for. So if that's what you're doing at this point, you really have to question the strategy. That seemed to be the strategy of going to Mexico and sort of, you know, using the Mexican president as a prop to show presidential Trump, you know, in, in quotes, presidential Trump. That's what you need to be doing and showing to people. And he did that for 37 minutes in Mexico on Wednesday afternoon. But, you know, the the hour and a half that he spent on stage in Phoenix just kind of, you know, the, the well, juxtaposition is so jarring. It's just hard to... to know what people really Let's take away from. Let's lift up here a second, because we're coming to a Donald Trump speech that is really a return to the kind of language and approach to this policy, this core policy issue that we saw from him during the primary, Charlie. And Corey Lewandowski did go on TV directly afterward. Eli is right to say that this was an appeal to white male voters. Is that really the kind of move that he should be making at this point in the process? I think that's the question, the, the real question here. Uh, I'm, I'm still sort of amazed because I, I can't quite understand the coherence or, or see any coherence in this strategy. I mean, if there's any group, first of all, it's too late to be locking in 
white male voter. They're already locked They're in. Locked. I mean, if the only vote he really has locked in is white males. I mean, there's just no question about that. So I don't understand what he has to gain from that. So uh, that to me is problematic. Why do they think they need to now? That is the only group that's locked in. But the more important thing I thought, and I think this was the great value to the Trump campaign, was the appearance on a stage with a polished world leader. I think that is almost... Uh, well, is he that polished though? He kind of like got owned a little bit. He let Trump did? say uh, EPN. Oh, they- it's, I'm not saying who won or who lost, or I'm not speaking to, to really uh, no, that the question. Optics were good it, for it, him. The yeah. optics were fantastic because the question going in was, does Trump explode? How would he handle it? He's never been in a situation like that. And for the first time, Americans who watched on TV got to see a viable image of Donald Trump on the world stage. And he didn't lose it. He didn't erupt, and the optics, I think, because in that case— Because he wasn't confronted. I mean, if the dude said what tr- he tweeted later, that he that he opened the meeting yeah, but prior that's to all... the press conference by saying that he would, that Mexico wouldn't pay for the wall, that would have made things— It is all chatter I mean, it's a low for bar for Trump to clear yeah. on the world stage for looking presidential because he has looked so unpresidential for most of this campaign. And the fact that he sat there, the fact that he took over and opened up a press conference at, at the Mexican president's residence, I mean, this, you know, there's, there's decorum and sort of politeness. And Trump says, no, I'll just start the press conference here, even though you're my host, and I'll take a couple questions. And then I'll lie about what was actually discussed or not discussed related to the central tenet of his immigration policy, who's going to build the wall Which and is pay the for central it, Mexico. Of his candidacy. That's right. And is still unclear to the point where he needs to have this speech in the first place to allegedly specify what the policy is. But even then, we don't come away with it with a lot, whole lot of clarity about it. I think if, if there is a ceiling, as, as I suspect for Donald Trump, and he's just really not able to grow his coalition, where he will make his gains is winning at the margins with people who might be amenable to his message, but aren't sure that he is a viable presidential candidate, meaning they're scared. They don't think he can handle it. And when you have an experience like that, where the optics are very good, that works in his benefit. I had an interesting conversation last night with a senior Clinton advisor afterwards who said, you know, I was worried after I saw him on stage in Mexico. So I did think the optics were good for him. I thought it was a smart sort of savvy play. We didn't expect that from him. Um, And he told me after watching that speech last night, less worried now, okay, because that speech, they called it a Nuremberg speech. After that, all the statesmanlike stuff is out the window. And I think the incoherence that you talk about, that's Trump's real problem. He's capable of sort of playing at statesmanship for an afternoon, but he didn't let it sink in, right? He had to go on stage. His campaign reports are one of these two things juxtaposed back to back in the same day um, so that it was that jarring. And I just think that that sort of undercuts any gains that he might have made from appearing on that stage because he gets up on the other stage in Phoenix and I don't know that people who had doubts about him and whether he, they could see him as president tuned into that speech last night. I can't imagine too many of them listened to his tone and said, yeah, he does look, he, he looks more presidential today. He maybe did this afternoon, but just the fact that it's so disjointed and jarring, well, I think is hard for people. Well, the disconnect between those two events on Wednesday, the, the, the 
appearance on stage with Peña Nieto and then the speech in Arizona really does reflect the kind of disconnect happening inside the campaign with the RNC, right? We're hearing reporting over the last one or two weeks that has RNC officials being pulled into Trump Tower for 11th hour discussions about ground game that should have been set up weeks and months ago. We have Jared Kushner and other senior members of Trump's inner circle saying, why haven't you put more people on the ground? Stop talking at us about metrics and start showing us results. We've got Katie Walsh saying, you know, you guys are the ones who have to be stepping up your game here. We're the ones doing all the work. I mean, the level of tension and hostility and frustration inside the campaign is about as obvious as the level of disjointedness in the public presentation. Yeah, and what's so interesting here is that the campaign moves, the the personnel moves that they made at the top of the campaign were in many ways intended to address this issue and to to, uh, quell any tension. That hasn't happened. I mean, sure, you get rid of. First, I mean, you look at the various iterations of this. First, we have Corey, uh, you know, and he's feuding with some of the grassroots people. Then you bring in Paul Manafort to address, uh, to professionalize the campaign, and he's feuding with Corey. Uh, then you, you know, then you get rid of Corey. Uh, Manafort has sole control, but the 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 kids mostly decide that no, they don't like the direction, so they bring in uh, Bannon and Kellyanne Conway. Now we see tension between the Bannon approach and the Kellyanne Conway approach, the Kellyanne Conway approach being that more measured. If if we could look and see like the Kellyanne Conway approach would be like the press conference in Mexico and the Bannon approach would be uh, the speech, even though, and the speech afterwards, even though uh, it did have some policy in there, it was very much, as Eli said, that red meat speech. So this is really uh, less, uh, as, as uh, the, the thing, the uh, expression goes, it, it's less like a, a, a glitch or a bug than it is like the, the fundamental uh, sort of uh, ethos of the Trump yeah, campaign, the one, tension the, at the top. Yeah, the one consistency of this campaign has been chaos. I mean, that's... That's the one thing. And this is the the lack of coherence that I I was referring to before. Uh, And it's reflected uh, in every aspect of that operation. For example, why was he in Washington State at a rally? That's ludicrous at this stage in the campaign. That's a state that hasn't gone uh, Republican since 1984. No one thinks it's going Republican this year. Not even Republicans or the strongest conservatives in Washington State. Um, take a look at the recent TV buys. Remember we were the announcement Monday, 10 states or 10, $10 million in tons of states. What we saw as of yesterday was that was not happening at all. Half that money had been spent. And one of the states, Michigan. I mean, maybe they know something that we don't, but uh, that's not something that they've, uh, you know, really focused on. And, and I think the analogy I would use is, I mean, imagine that you, uh, you're you selling a product or you're, you're in office, you have this great idea. It's built around a great product or a great idea. But the problem is the company has lots of power centers. There's no real unified uh vision for how to sell it or how to move it. Uh, There's an inability to execute tactically uh, and the vacuum is filled by chaos and dysfunction. So it doesn't matter how powerful the product is, there are limits to how much it can achieve because of that environment. And I think that's, that's exactly what you guys are speaking to, what you're finding in the reporting. All right, let's get to our next data point. It's 154. That's the estimated electoral vote count that Real Clear Politics has for Donald Trump as of today. Charlie, has Trump's position improved at all in August? 
it really hasn't if you take a look at the uh, electoral map at least uh, i mean obviously uh judging the uh, how solid or likely or leaning a particular state is is pretty subjective at this point but i mean i think there are a lot of things that we can agree on on the map and i think most people would agree and this is on the left and the right that uh you know in recent elections and certainly in this one democratic candidates have begun with uh, an advantage just in terms of how the uh, electoral map is lined up much in the same way that in the 80s and 90s there was talk of a republican lock on the uh, electoral college and what you're seeing uh, i think is uh, the part of the big problem that donald trump faces right now is that uh, if you look at real clear politics his electoral map and this is you'll get similar numbers if you take a look at other uh, news organizations is hillary clinton has a very big lead she's very close in terms of the states that she is likely to win uh, where she is leaning as the winner or that are going to be solidly in the Democratic camp, she's not that far away from the 270 electoral votes necessary to win. Uh, whereas Donald Trump is much farther away. He's closer to about 154, and that is really worrisome for, for the Republicans. I mean, uh, you've got states that uh, Texas is thought to be a leaner now. You've got uh, Utah, you know, another pretty strongly Republican state is thought to be uh, a leaner. Uh, Arizona and Georgia, states that have been pretty close to Republican locks in in modern presidential history. Those are considered toss-ups, at least by RCP, and I don't think they're that far off the mark. So in any case, you see that he's got a really big hill to climb here. It's amazing, actually, when I uh, talk to our reporters about this. I mean, Annie Carney is working on a story where she has paid consultants to the Clinton campaign saying that Hillary Clinton is starting at 249. I mean, listen to this quote from David Plouffe. She's sitting at 269 electoral votes guaranteed wow. right now. He said, I would argue she's sitting at 347, but for argument's sake, we can suspend reality for a moment. I mean, this is an extraordinary level of confidence. Now, maybe overconfidence, but still, I think what we're seeing is that she is starting at a place where he can't even approach. Yeah, I think when you talk about guaranteed 269, things like that, that's, re that's a really expansive view of what's in... Uh, Hillary Clinton's pocket right now. It's counting leaners and things like that. And I don't think you can really, in, in an election like this, with so much uncertainty, I don't think you can count all many of these states that appear to be leaning towards Hillary Clinton. There's lots of factors that lead me to think that, you know, this race isn't quite cooked yet. Let's let's hold off until probably after the first debate. Uh, but there's no question that she has an advantage in terms of what is a lockdown Democratic state. Yeah, and I think the you know another data point that we've been looking at on on Campaign Pro, focusing on the down ballot races right now, we're see, we're starting to see a lot of internal polling uh, flow out of Senate and House races around the country, and in particular in in battleground Senate districts, I don't think we've seen more than one or or maybe any uh, internal polls, even Republican internal polls, that has Trump over forty percent of the vote, and which is kind of this line he's been bumping around. On you know, no matter how good or bad Hillary Clinton is doing in the national polls, Trump has kind of been bumping around that forty percent line a lot. And now we're seeing it in these in in you know these kind of high quality uh, live caller polls that um, that campaigns pay a lot of money uh, to base their decisions off of in district after district too. Jump in here, Eli. Is well, there what what is the campaign doing to affect to effectively address this? Well, I mean, the Trump campaign believes that they are you know they've hit rock bottom, so to speak, and are are improving, and they continue to send me polls saying, "Look at our momentum," and these are polls that still show them losing, uh, but losing by less. I think the the you know they might say, "Oh, we've righted the ship. Trump's on message now. He's on the teleprompter. We're fixing it. Uh, we've got a more consistent attack line against Hillary." 
But I don't think it's the. I mean, Scott's right. You know, Trump's still stuck right around the 40 percent mark below it in some polls. She's the one who's lost support over the last couple of weeks. And I think that it's not so much that Donald Trump is suddenly making an argument that is sticking to her. It's that, you know, new revelations have come out that have sort of, you know, bogged her down. It's about the, the new emails that have been found. It's about new Clinton Foundation uh, revelations. It's about the fact that she is sort of out there coasting, um, you know, and doing one or two events a week and playing it so safe and ducking the press herself. I mean, there has been no positive news flow on Hillary Clinton for over a week. And so I think maybe she's waiting for Labor Day. But, I, you know, that's the, that's what's happening. And yet you still see a poll, um, you know, a lot of swing state polls that show her like in Pennsylvania, she's lost a couple points. She's still up seven. OK, in Pennsylvania, she's got 30 offices. Donald Trump has two. So when you look at all the campaign fundamentals, Charlie's right, the race not fully cooked, but I don't know what the Trump campaign has really done to, to change things. They've just benefited from a, a rough patch, rougher patch for Hillary Clinton. Um, and, you know, the race has not really changed all that much. My read on this uh, in looking at the, the bulk of the polls and, and the sort of strategic approaches that the campaigns are taking is that this is really Hillary Clinton's race to lose right now. I think the point that came up earlier was a really smart one, which is that Donald Trump is not really getting beyond the low 40s in most polls. And so we, we there is a big body of evidence that suggests there is a ceiling for Donald Trump. He will not hit 50 percent. Even if he wins, he will not win with a majority of the vote. It'll be a more of a 90s-style Bill Clinton win. Uh, that's what the polls suggest right now. And so, uh, But what you're seeing in the polls, and I think some of the erosion that e- Eli alluded, alluded to, was that people were reminded over the last couple weeks of what they don't like about Hillary Clinton, and the slippage is in her numbers. And so to me, that suggests ultimately uh, it's hers to lose, and so much is riding. I would get back to the first point I was making, which is so much is riding on that first debate. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you look at what the Clinton campaign announced just this morning after Trump's speech in, uh, in Arizona Wednesday night, that they're going to go spend hundreds of thousands of dollars advertising in Arizona. I mean, you can see in terms of the way money is being spent in this race and where it's being spent, that Clinton is still the one with the confidence that, yes, this is her race to lose and that she's not worried about losing it. She's trying to run up the score. Donald Trump, uh, you know, on the opposite side of this, uh, you know, is sort of presenting himself as like, we're turning it around. We're spending money. Here comes our ad blitz. Well, the $10 million ad blitz in nine or 10 swing states, which which is nothing actually at this point in the race spread across all those states only materialized about half, you know, about $5 million this, has been right. spent this week. And yes, they can come and spend more. Um, but, you know, Donald Trump is notoriously uh, frugal when it comes to spending money, especially on TV ads. He's railed for years against what a waste of money these things are. You don't get any bang for your buck. You have to, it's a scam because the media buyers take their commission. He hates spending money on TV ads. And if he doesn't want to spend as much as he really needs to to change this race, they're probably not going to spend that much at all. I think it's unrealistic, though, for us to have expected that over the course of August he would have completely turned these polls around. I mean, he was deep in it. I mean, the, the deficit was quite was quite deep for him starting out um, after the after the conventions and coming into August. But there has been a narrowing in some of these polls. Scott, what's happening in Wisconsin? We saw two things this week. Yeah, so we saw a couple uh, polls come out in Wisconsin yesterday that uh, were pretty interesting. We had a, a Monmouth poll there uh, showing uh, Clinton up by five points, 42-37, and then a Marquette poll uh, showing uh, the difference between them only three points, 41-38. 
uh, on the four-way ballot with uh, Jill Stein and Gary Johnson. And so, um, you know, it's it's one of those states that people were talking about for a long time before this election as as kind of a, a a longtime blue state that Republicans would be able potentially to pick off because of some of the uh, demographic change in the parties and and in the state there. And, you know, you could see you could certainly make a case for for Wisconsin being one of those states that was always closer than people really thought, uh, you know, despite just looking at the win loss record and, you know, has has a, a kind of big blue collar white population that, that Trump traditionally throughout this campaign has done very well with. Um, and so, you know, we're maybe seeing in, in some of this narrowing nationally uh, one sign of a state that's that's starting to look a little bit better for him. Do you read the same thing into the Wisconsin numbers, Charlie? I do. I tend to think that when it comes to the battleground polls, one of the things that I'm watching pretty closely is uh, the idea that the race is cooked, I, I think, is just so far from reality. I do think she has uh, a, a lead, and I think it's the race at this point is Hillary Clinton's to lose. But if you take a look at the bulk of the competitive states— Many, if not most of them, are still within the margin of error, many of these polls, uh, which is notable, especially if, as, uh, and I think uh, there was an interesting story recently um, about the the distinction between the uh, live caller polls and the online polls and how Trump tends to do slightly better in those. And and I think, uh, I'm not sure that uh, I believe that he is under polling or, or that there's some kind of reverse Bradley effect there. But if there is some sort of distinction and there is some sort of social stigma attached to admitting um, that, that you, you're voting for Donald Trump, if all of those toxins are in the bloodstream, then it is a closer race than we think. And certainly that's what the battleground polls suggest. Just one thing I'd say, I, I, a lot of these swing states are within the margin of error, but we've seen that there are also some where even though the polls are continually close there, Trump hasn't led in a long time. Like North right. Carolina comes to mind uh, where, you know, it's they've always been a one to three point race. But I don't remember the last time we saw a you know reputable poll showing. And, and so, you know, it's one of the, the yes, it's within the margin of error. But when you're, you're kind of like looking at the whole body of work going in there, I think you can. You can start to to point. It's still close, but but I I don't think there's any suggestion that Trump is necessarily ahead at this point. Well, one thing that, that has me thinking about this a lot, especially the, the distinction between the live and the online calls, and the uh, you know the the stigma attached to this is something that the Trump campaign talks about sometimes. They don't call it that, but the stigma attached to being a Trump voter. I saw it this weekend. I was at a wedding, and so uh, I was at a table with about five people. One person admits that they're. Uh, and this was a fairly, this was not a Washington crowd at all. So I, I just want to make that clear. This is a sort of normal. Uh, America crowd. Only with real people. <laughs> this was real America. <laughs> and so one of the per, one of the people uh, said that they were a Trump voter and the other four people at the table just jumped down his throat about mm-hmm. it. And uh, this person was clearly taken aback by it. And I was too. I, I was really surprised because these were not rabid, died in the wool partisans or people that were overtly political, at least to, to my knowledge before. So uh, that really underscored to me that, you know, I don't know, it, it, there is some truth to that. So what'd you do? Get up and go back to the bar? Uh, I threw beers on all of them. And, you know, I, I, <laughs> I was just mostly uh, so amazed by the vehemence of the criticism of this person. Almost as shocking as when you were at a wedding, you hear someone is a Cowboys fan, maybe. <laughs> it's not that bad. Let's get to the last data point. It's 80 million That's how much the Clinton campaign raised in August from the 68 fundraisers that Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine headlined. Now, that's a big number, Ken, but tell me about those online small dollar donations. 
Yeah, that's right. They they through the early the mid this week through Wednesday they had raised only seven point five million dollars through online fundraising. And the reason that's a potential red flag is that unlike these fundraisers, which are typically attended by big donors who write max checks both to the campaign and sometimes to the joint fundraising committee, the online money comes from small donors. Those are the types of folks who can keep giving over and over and over again and create a real sustainable revenue stream for a campaign. On the flip side, the big donors... Not so much. Once they write that big check, they're usually maxed out and they can't give again. So it's it's in some ways harder to raise this big money because you have to keep on finding more big donors and campaigns really like to have the small money uh, coming in because that's sort of, it requires less effort and it allows them to continue to pull from this same revenue stream. It's a particular flag for Clinton's campaign that there's this great disparity between or imbalance between the big money coming in and the small money coming in uh, because they are relying so much on their superior fundraising and infrastructure to be able to try to put away Donald Trump here at this stage where he's sort of vulnerable and teetering on the edge. It's a big departure, right, from what we've seen in in recent presidential election. You know, the Obama campaign had such a online fundraising powerhouse. Sanders obviously powered his entire campaign practically uh, off that of people giving again and again and again. Actually, there was a really interesting story in the, the Atlantic earlier this week about like the the Sanders super donors who uh, gave so many times that they wildly exceeded the federal campaign contribution limits without realizing it. Uh, you know, they gave fifteen dollars. You know how many hundreds of times and they end up, you know, giving seven, eight, nine thousand dollars when you're only allowed to give fifty four hundred. Which frankly is, is a problem, but is a problem that most campaigns would like to have because they just refund That's the one money. Hillary Clinton would like to have right. right now. And it means that there's all this energy behind the campaign. It's one of the ways that the campaign's used to sort of gauge grassroots support, grassroots momentum. That's why you're always seeing them focusing on how much they how much they've raised from small donors and sometimes frankly like gaming the figures a little bit. Well the try to suggest that like oh we had this many individual donations and small donations and they're like double counting so they'll count your San- your hypothetical Sanders donor who gave $15 a hundred times they'll count that as a hundred donations whereas like if you actually look at it that's really just one small donor but the small donors add up. Let, let's take the Bernie Sanders example. In February of this year, that's the month that he won the New Hampshire primary. He raised $43.5 million total. 26.8 of that came in small donations, probably mostly online. That was what allowed him to stay in the race so long. That's the type of grassroots uh, support and uh, small dollar momentum that Hillary Clinton would like to see headed into the stretch run. It doesn't really matter in the end. I mean, yes, uh, Hillary Clinton doesn't do as well uh, in online fundraising as Bernie Sanders. I mean, to me, it doesn't. It's a great number. It's really fascinating. But I don't think it really reveals anything that we didn't already know that big donors like her more, that Bernie created more energy at the uh, grassroots level. Uh, And so to me, just validates what we already knew. And I don't think I think in another election, it would matter more. I don't think it matters really that much here because there's no question, uh, at least that I'm aware of, correct me if I'm wrong, she she is going to outspend Donald Trump by a lot. She's going to outraise him by a lot. By a and mile. so who cares? You know, yeah, ultimately, well, who cares is that she she has built this massive infrastructure with this, you know, the, the, this huge campaign apparatus with all these staff, hundreds of staff, as many as 800 staff, all these offices in all these states. 
and she is relying on that and you need money to be able to power that. So if there is a cash flow problem, I'm not saying that there is, but certainly when you have that type of imbalance and you're relying that much on big donors, you have the potential to have a cash flow problem that could be significant. Yeah, and, I, and I, you're not you're not wrong there. I'm not saying you're wrong, but I guess what I'm saying is it's it, the hour is late. Uh, they have a ton of money. Uh, there's no reason to think they couldn't uh, make up that money. They're going to outspend their uh, their opponent in the end. There's no question about that. So to me, that's why I, I wonder about what a big deal it is or not. I mean, may, maybe the effects here are more long term than we're thinking about, right? I, I think so. First of all. Uh, if Clinton wins, she's going to have to run again, right? And she she would not start kind of the the process of of running for re-election with that enormous list that that Barack Obama brought in. The the less you can raise online, the more time you have to spend at these fundraisers, right? And the the more it maybe reinforces opinions of her as kind of being cloistered with this moneyed elite. Uh, you know, Sanders. Well, these are just the regular folks at the Hamptons where Charlie was at the <laughs> wedding this weekend. Who she's I was hanging not out in the Hamptons for a wedding. I was in. In real America. I was, in fact, I was in central Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. Where? York? No, not York. I was in the... Uh, Where our new, our incoming editor-in-chief, Carrie Budoff, is from? No, I was from Center, oh. center County. All right. Well, that works. But still, it would be more points if you were in York. So, <laughs> back, Sorry, back to the online fundraise. The, you know, Sanders didn't didn't do these, right? His campaign called them terrestrial fundraisers, I think, which is an amazing turn of phrase. But he had, what, four or five or six? He spent the rest of the time speaking to these rallies that got bigger and bigger and bigger. And he, he wasn't in, he didn't, he not only didn't have to spend the time, he didn't have to bother with the optics of being in, you know, these you know fancy restaurants or, or you know, a condo on the Upper West Side. Uh, kind of begging for checks from the, from folks. Yeah, yeah, totally. And the reason and the reason why it's a problem is you know you you reference the optics. It's not just the optics of her being like cloistered with the Goldman Sachs bankers who also you know paid her a uh, hundred thousand dollars and her husband hundred thousand dollars for speeches. It's also that she's made a central plank in her platform removing big money from politics or at least diminishing the influence of big money in politics. And here she is, a champion big money fundraiser showing time and again throughout the course of the summer throughout you know every fundraiser in the Hamptons and in uh, Hollywood with with the you know uh, uh, Justin Timberlake why uh, she and her husband are champion big money fundraisers who really even before Citizens United were pushing the envelope of the types of big checks that you could inject into the political process that's it for us goodbye Ken Fun time as always. Goodbye, Eli. Bye, Kristen. Scott. Bye, pod people. Charlie. Goodbye. Thank you to Bridget Mulcahy, our producer, and thank you to you for listening. Talk to you next week. We love doing this podcast, and we really love hearing from you. So please keep the emails coming to nerdcast at politico.com and go to your favorite podcast app and leave a review. Thank you for listening. Thank you.